Bismillah, assalamu alaikum, and welcome to Daraja. This is Omar bringing you the Stairway to Your Higher Self podcast. Daraja is an Arabic word that means levels, stages, steps, or degrees. In each episode, we'll bring you stories of Muslim leaders from around the world who have overcome significant challenges through discipline, positivity, and faith. Our goal is that you'll be inspired through their stories to reach your higher self. Welcome to Daraja. I am excited to be talking to none other than Naz Shah. She's a British Labour parliamentarian. She was elected in 2015 in the general election as a member of uh, parliament for Bradford West, winning the seat from George Galloway. She has also served in the opposition front bench since 2018 as shadow minister for crime reduction. Naz, welcome to the Daraja Stairway to Your Higher Self podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Good to be Absolutely. on. I am excited about your story because I think yours is one of inspiration, uh, one that will leave our audience not only in awe, uh, but inspired because you know, from where you started to where you are today. And of course, as human beings, we continue to face challenges, um, but you have proven that, you know, you can come out on top, you could come out on the other side, despite of your challenge. So just for our audience, I'd like to give you kind of a preview of, of how we're gonna break up the pod, this episode of the podcast. First, we're gonna start with uh, Naz's childhood then we're going to talk about her first marriage and then what happens after her marriage. Let's start at the beginning. You were six years old. Obviously, you were you were uh, you were born in the UK. So, what was what was your childhood like? So, my childhood up until six was absolutely beautiful. I was the apple of my father's eye. I was, um, you know, I, I had normal kind of extended family. My mum came to the UK in the seventies as a bride to her first cousin. And my dad was, you know, spoke broad Yorkshire English and was a really, really nice kind of, um, he was, he'd light up the room when he walked in, real kind of man about, you know, street guy. And he had a business, he was doing really well. Mum was living with the extended family. And then at six years old, my life turned upside down because my dad eloped with the na- with the neighbour's daughter and he left us. And that's where... You, know, you kind of like remember the good things and you also remember the kind of things that shaped your life. And that day in February when my dad left was the day that really the story of the the, the, the birth of Naz Shah, if you like, the Naz that you know and, and the, the one that I, I know now started. And that's where the struggle started. The memories I do have are at six years old being put into the back of a car with our what you called garbage bags we call black bin liners and my life kind of became defined and as I talked about the rest of it it was all about black bin liners your belongings into a black bin liner into the back of a car and moving and we just moved and moved and moved and my mother was pregnant with my sister um who was born in July 1980 so you know it and my younger brother was only three years old my brother and I both had TB my mum didn't know English. And my very early memories, apart from being in the back of that car outside Hartman Place, was my mum getting lost on a bus 
because we went on a bus and to my um, grandparents, my my granddad's house, and my mum got didn't know where she was, and the bus driver, bless him, got out of the bus and showed her, you're only a few hundred yards away, but it didn't stop my mum absolutely crying her eyes out with three kids, one in a tiny pushchair and myself and um, and my brother. So those are the kind of memories that you have, just moving from with black bin liners from one place to another, squalor to squalor, in deprivation, in poverty. But you don't know that at the time because you're only six. You don't know that you're in de- deprivation because you have a mother who loves you and will do anything for you and she makes sure you're fed and she makes sure you're clothed. You know, you do, you, so you don't realise you're in poverty and how much abject poverty you're in. I mean, the fact that we had one room and, you know, we lived in that room, I didn't understand that the reason why we didn't sleep in the bedroom was because we couldn't heat that room. It was just because that's how things were. So those were the kind of childhood memories. My brother and I both had TB, so we were on medication. So it was just poverty. But, you know, we had uh, we had each other and uh, mum was, you know, my mum is, um, I am my mum, you know. I am kind of, when I think about my mum, it's her that's kept me together. You know, it's, it's her that's that raised us the way she did. You know, that Tarbiya came from her. And despite everything that she went through, she never gave up on us. And after that, you know, you went to school. There's a few things that kind of define a theme that run throughout my life, and that's the patriarchy. You don't realise it at the time, but the fact that, and the shame and the dishonour that the women bear the burden of, and it was, you know, you can't do this because you haven't got a father, it will bring shame. I mean, I saw my first movie, and I'll never forget it was Rocky V, and when I was 12 years old, just before I went to Pakistan, that was the first experience I had of cinema. You know, because my best friend at the time, Joanna Lockwood, she loved Rocky. And she was like, you've got to go. We went to the audience to watch Rocky. And it was a big deal because at the time, my mum didn't want me to go to the pictures because, again, it was not what a good girl does. You don't, it was, you have not got a father. And ideally, it'd be your father who should take you or your brother who should take you. So you can't go to the pictures. I remember it being a battle going to watch a movie with my best friend who was 12 at the time so there was that whole kind of your, your expectations of behavior where the measuring yardstick for you was much much higher just right. because you didn't have a father because you were the pet child of a single parent because you were a, you, you know you didn't have extended family around and you didn't have that structure of community to protect you because you it doesn't matter that your husband has left you it matters that you are on your own and it matters that he, it's its a woman that bears the burden of that shame. I, it, when I look back at it, you know, I'm, I'm at the ripe old, old age of 50 this year, you know, um, and I look back at it and I think, wow, that still runs throughout, you know, those 45 years. It, it's changed, but there's still that concept of patriarchy. There's still that concept of, you know, the shame and dishonour that the women bear the burden of, and it's never given to the man. You know, so so those were the things that really took me up to the age of 12, I suppose, until I went to Pakistan. In spite of everything you've been through, here you are. You're an MP uh, in the UK that has uh, influence and you're, you're you're challenging these stereotypes. And it's, it's such an inspirational story. I wanted to ask you, though, um, if, 
obviously your father was removed from your life at a very early age. Your mom did the best she could to take care of you, but it was almost as if there was, your childhood was disrupted with the with with the removal of your father from the picture. Um, did you did you have to take care of your mom in terms of you know you talked about you know at the age of six? What was that like as a six year old for you? Could you just tell us a little bit little bit of, about that? So mum couldn't speak English, and because she couldn't speak English, her benefits going to the doctors, going to, you know, I had to be her translator. So overnight, you do, you lose your childhood because overnight you become a carer. You become a, you you become the responsible person that you're relied upon and that impacts on your childhood because you're the person who's now, you know, making sure mum, when she goes to the benefits agency, she's, she's making, she's making the right claims. She's, all of those things that, that responsibility on a six-year-old is quite, at the time, you just get on with it because you, that's the circumstance you're faced with. You know, but those are the cards you dealt, you just learn to play with them. But it was, you know, it was very, very, I think when you have to do that, it gives you, you know, what you talked about earlier about grit and that resilience. You know, I didn't even know the word resilience because, you know, I left school at 12. I was shipped off to Pakistan because of, you know, in all this time, my mum met a man who paid the deposit of the house using her gold, sold her gold because she wanted to buy a house. And when Adam came on the scene, he sexually exploited her because she was vulnerable, and she and he abused her for years and years and years. And and when he he had designs on me, my mum sent me to Pakistan. I was there for two years and four months. I didn't come back until I was. 15 years old and had a forced marriage not my mum that forced me but my extended family who coerced me into this marriage you know because of family pressures and in, in living in Pakistan for two and a half years leaving school at 12 to for my mum to try and protect me from this guy who then she you know by the time I was 18 had eventually killed because she'd got me away but now my sister was growing up who was 11 you know the the, the it's it's really interesting. It's hard to. It's kind of like how do you put this into a timeline of what happened at twelve? You know, six you become responsible for your mum. At the age of twelve, you're shipped over to Pakistan in a country you don't. You know, you don't. You've never been to before, and you're without your parent, without your siblings, and you're playing. You know, I was a bit of a tomboy when I grew up because I had. You know, my my dad had eight brothers. So or a lot of them were young and my age. So I was kind of like the, the eldest grandchild. So when I did have my relatives and, and my uncles that I played with, I grew up with. And then when I went to Pakistan, another thing, another incident happened where I was playing with my cousin. I was only 13 years old. And I remember my cousin said, you can't, my, my female cousin said, you can't play with him. Why can't you? Because you'll be marrying him. I was 13. The idea that, you even think about marriage at the age of 13 and you can't play with your cousin as a child, it robs you of your childhood, let alone robbing me of, at the age of six of my childhood. But at 13, you have some concept, some idea of life and what have you. But you still don't think about marriage. You're still not thinking about, you know, the responsibility of what you have to do. And that that day, I felt that my childhood, I consciously felt that my childhood, I've been robbed of my childhood because I wasn't allowed to be a child. I was I had to think like um you know an, an adult because this is what's expected of you. And then staying there for two years and four months, 
you know, and I and I learned every, you know, because when I went, I didn't realise I was going to be that, there that long. So I was really happy in the village, you know. I did every job a villager could do, whether it was, you know, going and uh, the farming, the um, wheat, the corn, the sowing of the crop, cutting the crop, preparing the crop, the buffaloes, the milking of the buffaloes, the using the buffalo dung to turn it into, you know, into um, fuel for the fire, on burning life fire to make chapatis on, to make food on. You know, I had uh, I had all them experiences. I didn't know I was going to be stuck there for two years and four months. And so and when I came back, I was 15 and married. So you got married in Pakistan and then you brought your husband over. Yeah, so I had to go back in when I was 16 because technically, legally, I couldn't be married till I was 15. So Islamically, I could be married at 15. But for my marriage for the purpose of a visa... I had to go back and resubmit a second nikah, a nikah nama, which we'll come to when we talk about the Galloway issue. And again, the um, so when I went back to Pakistan when I was sixteen, had the proper wedding ceremony, and then he came over to England by the time I was seventeen. You know, because I was working. I was working when I came back at fifteen. I didn't go back into education. I started working uh, private jobs and just because Mum didn't send me back to school. So I just worked packing uh, Pampers reject nappies into into big bags. And my, I remember my first wage being £9 something for a whole week's wage. That's like, I think it's like 7 or $8 for a whole week's wage of packing. I mean, I got better at it. You know, I, I went up to 100 and something a week. But in those days, um, at the age of 15, that's what I was doing. Can you give us like a synopsis of your life from 16 through 18? How, what was that like? So 16, I was working. I'd, I'd got promoted. I was working now doing the laundry for the local hospital in a laundrette. And then, uh, you know, washing the sheets, um, putting them through their kind of big uh, industrial ironing and drying machines. Then I got even luckier and went to Seabrook's Crisps, packing crisps. It paid much better in the food industry, which is now in my constituency. So I was getting good money. Husband came over, but I didn't want to be in that marriage. And I was, and I, and I, because we didn't have any, you know, he wasn't, it was a forced marriage. I didn't want to be in the marriage. I was doing it because that's what you did. You know, you just got on with it. So I spent as much overtime as I could in my job. By the time I was 18, I left home because I wanted to, I was craving to go back into education. I didn't want this life. So I said to, I, I left home. I left my job, took some savings, went down to Watford and my mum rang me and, you know, I spoke to my mum about a few days later and she was very upset um, because I'd, I'd ran away effectively and said, you've got to come home, he's gone, he's not here anymore, he's gone to Germany. So I came home, all they'd done was moved him to another relative's house and and at that point, that was in January, by April, you know, we had another tragedy which is where the guy who'd been exploiting my mum, my mum had, had had come to the end of a tether. She'd attempted suicide. She'd had lots of, she was, he exploited her. He, he was in prison for drug trafficking. He pimped her from prison to inmates for favours. You know, my mum had had enough of that life and she tried to kill herself and she eventually killed him. So in April, on April the 11th, she murdered the man who abused her. So I'd just come back in, remember January, February, I'd come back into the family home, my husband had gone. And then April, 
all this happened. And then when that happened, you know, mum life again changed and it became, you know, because of the hold that he had over the house. And that was why my mum was exploited, why she was abused, the sexual abuse she took and the pimping and all the rest of it. And my mum went, got locked up. She eventually got locked up. She got, she got arrested. I got arrested twice on two occasions. Then mum got arrested and charged with murder. And then it was, well, you can't live on your own now because you've not got your mum. So you've got to bring your husband back. Despite all the beatings, you've got to bring him back into the house because you've got to have a male figure around. I started talking about me having a forced marriage by the time I was in my 30s. By the time I was elected to Parliament, that one day I just sat there and I called it what it was, which was rape. And then I kind of like owned that, that this is what my experience was. But it's taken me years to get to that conclusion. Because you didn't, because even forced marriage, you know, you don't call it a forced marriage. Because a forced marriage isn't where, you know, you're putting a gun to somebody's head. It's that coercion. It's right. that pressure. You're vulnerable. At 15, what do you know about marriage? You're a child. You're, you know, you, when I look at my kid, when my children, my, my daughter was 15, there were times when my daughter and my niece, because they're six months apart, would be playing and I'd just sit there and burst into tears and I'd get so emotional because I'd think they just sat there on their snapchat they sat there giggling about makeup they sat there giggling about songs they sat there giggling about you know what's happening in school and what have you I never experienced any of that and for my child to be able to live that normality it was kind of like such a sigh of relief that we'd broken the cycle you know we'd broken the cycle of shame and honor defining you as a child defining you as a girl and that you can be who you want to be you know you can be whoever you choose to be and there's no pressure or expectation or measuring yardstick yeah. for you against against my boys you know what does the word dean mean to you dean means that connection between you and god it's not for the world to judge it just means it's so simple to me it's so simple. It's not complicated. It's just about being true to who you need to be, but with the love for God. And not because not because you're being, you're, there's a measurement, there's nobody who's going to judge you apart from him. The only person you need to satisfy is your connection with him, and that's a one-to-one -one connection. In whatever I do, my Lord expects me to be giving to my neighbours and only giving what I would expect for me. My Lord expects me to be good to my parent. You know, he expects me to maintain those relationships. And that those are challenges. On this short earth, that you be the best that you can be. And for some people, that best is changing the world. For some people, that best is being the best of making sure you're running a, a soup kitchen, which is feeding the homeless. There's some people, it's maintaining and caring for their loved ones because they've got disabilities or they've got whatever and they're managing their home the best they can against a backdrop. It, it's, it's whatever your internal test is, for me, embodying that and being able to live it and know that on a night when you sleep, you can say to me, oh Lord, you know what? Alhamdulillah, I live another day. If I wake up tomorrow, I will continue. You know, it's really simple. It really is. It's not complicated for me at all. But, but ultimately, it's me. It's just, it's just being the best human being you can be. You know, and, and it's 
it's fulfilling. It, it absolutely is. Like how you started navigating that journey of, you know, extracting her uh, from the, the, the prison system. But when mum met that or black sister, they met her and immediately the forensics were really clear that she'd murdered him. So the question was, why? So they asked her that question. And I often say, had my mum been arrested by a woman of colour or a woman from my community, she would have probably seen there was something not quite right here. Had she been represented by a person, a lawyer, who was of her community or a, a woman or a woman of colour, she'd have had a different experience. Had the judges and the police been different, you know, been people of colour or from the community or from the culture, they'd have picked all this up. But it took a woman from a, a rights advocate, a women's rights advocacy group at Southport Black Sisters to meet my mum and say, we know you killed him. It's very clear why. And at that point, they started piecing the story of abuse. They started piecing together. And it was in 1995, we started the campaign for her appeal. So it was three years in, and we started the campaign for appeal. And that's when I became, I remember my first public speech in Bradford to call, you know, to get support for my mum's campaign. We launched for Zora Shah, the free Zora Shah campaign. And I had it written down and I just cried. I did not get through that one A4 sheet. I just cried my eyes out in Bradford College and I couldn't get my words out. And then, because I was asking people, I was begging people to help us. And then we went to, we went, we got an appeal hearing. We started campaigning. I spoke at events. I went on the TV I went to Parliament to lobby Jack Straw. Um, you know, it, it, yeah. it was interesting. So, and, and that was my first ever visit to Parliament as a campaigner to ask for her, for the then Home Secretary Jack Straw, to reduce my mum's tariff. So I campaigned. I travelled up and down the country. I spoke at conferences. I spoke at events. I, you know, I had a documentary made, you know, I'm trying to get my mum out of prison. So that the campaigner in me was born. We went, we reduced her tariff from 20 years to 12 years, but she still served another two years because the system wasn't equipped. It's a Eurocentric model. My mum's forgiveness was to God. It wasn't a Eurocentric model, right? So she was on her nama, and for her, she was now free of abuse. So she became healthy. She became, you know, she learned to cook. She got certificates to cook in the kitchen. She was cooking in the kitchen. She was free of any pressure of maintaining a mortgage, pressure of maintaining. So she actually thrived physically. The only punishment she had was being separated from her kids and not having the freedom. By the time my mum came out in 14 years, we all owned our own homes. We were all married. We were all settled. Mm. You know, I had my first child. My daughter, my sister had her first child. You know, mum had come home. She came home to us in a very, very secure environment. So those, those years, were literally defined by fighting every step of the way. At what point did you confront George Galloway? George Galloway came to Bradford, and Bradford is dominated by a model of politics, which is from Pakistan, which is Bradley politics, clan politics. We've had papers written on it. We've had research on it. And it was about families, families, dynasty, you know, people who had power and control. That didn't do community development, because I'd been a community development worker. That kept women behind. It didn't include the women. It was by men, for men, for the purpose of power. And that was about Bradley. So George Galloway came in 
knight in shining armor hadn't heard of him before in 2012 said i'm going to break bradley politics and i thought right that can only be a good thing so i voted for him in 2012 we had a massive you know political earthquake if you like in in bradford because bradford was seen as labor and then george galloway swept it from us and then the guy made comments about the rape uh, you know the julian assange uh, stuff and and it, and I really, really struggled with all of that. And I, I, so I'd bought into the idea that he'd break the Bradley, but actually he was just an opportunist. He was just a, you know, he was a demagogue, Trumpian, divisive figure. So by the time 2014 came, which was literally two years in, you know, I was asked what is wrong with Bradford, and I knew intrinsically that the racism, so what happens is I said, look, it's racist because you've got people in positions of power were incompetent, but we keep them in positions of power because it's a Pakistani model of politics and it's run by male men, it's patriarchal, it's regressive to women, but the white folk are challenging it because you're doing because they get you blocked votes, so you're keeping the people where they are rather than empowering them. So I went off on a rant and the guy says, Would you ever you know have you ever thought about politics? I went, No big daft. It's a man's world and it's the dirtiest place to be. And he went, Well, you know, if you not not in it, who's gonna clean it up? And I thought to myself, you know, that's a fair point. That was on the 1st of June 2014. By 6th of May 2015, I was elected. It was a fast, fast experience. It was, you know, I went, went to, and again, I went through the selection process and I didn't make the selection. I didn't get voted in by the members because the members voted for somebody who came out of the city. And then the only reason I got a, te- a shot at a second shot at it was because she decided her kids were doing GCSEs and she was too busy. The rest of the is history, but I had a really interesting election because George Galloway pulled out my Nikanama. They went through, they've ordered the paperwork for my mum's campaign, for my mum's appeal hearing, and said, because I'd said I'd been forced, I had a forced marriage at 15, and it said in my mum's statement that she'd been back to Pakistan when I was 16 to get married, they said, oh, she's lying. So he pulled out, he had my marriage certificate from my 15th when I was 16. And I was like, well, yeah, you would, because there's two, because there's one when I was 15 in Manikar. But he said, oh, she wasn't ma- it wasn't a forced marriage because it was, it was, she was, you know, her mother was there. And it was like, guy, you know, you're undoing the work that we've done to highlight the issue of forced marriage. And the, it, the thing, the intimidation, you know, I'm the wrong person to try and intimidate. You know, I ain't been intimidated by, you ain't intimidating me. I had crows thrown on my doorstep with stuffed dead crows with stuffed beaks, with grass, add him on his, uh, on his, um, the intimidation tactics were surreal, but I'm from Bradford, and I lived in Bradford, and I care about Bradford, and it's my city, and it's like, you know, you are, you, you were an absentee MP, you were never here, you used my city, and my space to give you the platform, I never made the link back to Rocky Five, maybe that's what it was. That's that. That's exactly. I was. I was gonna say he didn't go far back enough in your in your history to see that you watched Rocky Five. You know, you started. You were an adult at six years old. Then he would have known uh, to come at you from a different perspective. But you know, and I. What I love about your story is where you started, and you're. It's almost like a phoenix rising. My question to you is: as we come to a close, what's next? I want to shift the dial in Bradford. Being here eight and a half years, I'm ambitious for my city because my city is amazing. The people are amazing. 
you know, I they they honour me every single day by allowing me to be the, their MP, allowing me to represent them. I want to be able to lead, to be able to bring change in my city, and that's when I've I've done my job. We've got some, we've got the youngest city in the whole of the UK, and we've got some amazing. There's no poverty of aspiration amongst the kids in Bradford. There's no poverty of any of that. The poverty is the structures, and that's what I want to shatter. I want to shatter. The you know the the the, the things that stop us that stop our young people from reaching where they need to reach. So right. I really really want to do that. So that's what's next for me. And I think if I can stay in that space and I can right. stay, you know, I I need a legacy and I need a legacy to say you know what I I changed something and made it better for the people that I serve because I want people to understand the beauty of of what you get when you make a difference. It's so. It's fuel for the soul. It really, really is. I am so inspired by your story, Nasha. <laughs> and you. hopefully we can have you back as a guest. And I just want to say thank you on behalf of our audience. And we hope that, um, you know, people take take away uh, the fact that regardless of what you're going through, you can end up uh, in a better place as Nas has done so. Again, thank no. you so much for being a part of, uh, of Daraja and being an inspiration yeah. for our audience. Thank you. No, thank you.